Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we'd like to speak to writers of all kinds about how they got into the industry, what the writing process is, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, this is the 80th episode, which is kind of a, I suppose, a big landmark episode, Tarek. Who would have thought we'd make it to 80 episodes? <laughs> Certainly not me. <laughs> I'm sure we say this at every landmark episode. <laughs> We've got another five episodes we're, in we're, the can. We're still doing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, there's a big back catalogue of some really great uh, authors, screenwriters, video game writers, comic writers, so do check out the back catalogue. But also, stay and listen to this week's episode. Oh, this week we have got a really exciting episode. We're chatting with Imran Mahmood, who um, has written a couple of books. His first one was You Don't Know Me. It was chosen by Simon Mayo as a BBC Two uh, Radio 2 book club choice, uh, long listed for the Thieves and Crime Novel of the Year and the Gold Gold Dagger Award. Uh, it's currently being adapted for screen. But his new book is I Know What I Saw, and it's just been out in the last month or so, yeah. out time of recording. And it's, it's a fantastic book about a man who sees, a homeless man who sees a murder and is not uh, trusted or actually believed at all by the police when he when he reports it it's a really good twisty crime novel mm-hmm. and, and and imran of course also has another career full-time career <laughs> as as a criminal barrister which is kind of where he get, got the idea for writing his books in the first place and we, you know we chat to him about that and how you balance you know working a full-time difficult job like that with writing and also he says he's got young kids and he's, and he's working on lots of TV projects as well. I mean, as it I is. ask him in the podcast, does he ever sleep? I, I, I don't think he can do. It's funny, isn't it? Some people just seem to have to be able to manage all these strings, and I'm not sure I would manage one of them. But it's, it's no, exactly. Impressive. Exactly. But we'll get straight into the interview after a quick advert for our page one notebook eh, about those notebooks, which are notebooks designed to help you plan and write your story. Um, we're currently getting the second print run done, which has taken a bit longer than anticipated. But if you go to our website, you can register your interest and you'll get a discount on the books when they come out. But we'll play a quick advert for that, then we'll get into the interview and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's exciting guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. 
And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because obviously you have a significant other career as well. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I always wanted to be a barrister and then I started that and it took up so much time and it was a long time before I realised it wasn't it didn't deliver everything it promised. Mm-hmm. And so as I was doing that, I, was, I think I was always itchy for something else to do. And um, I used to write um, in between cases, I would write really terrible short stories which nobody ever read they were, I mean in fact I think I gave one of them to a colleague in Chambers to read and, and and she would ask for them every now and then she'd say I've got another of these short stories and I'd give them to her and she'd say they're really nice but they're really depressing <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of you know I just kind of gave up on that you know, whole idea mm-hmm. And then one day, so the, the, one day, what 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 happened was that I was writing a closing speech in a murder trial, and I had a really bright client. He was very clever, um, young lad accused of murder in a gang. And I remember thinking, and he knew his case really well. He knew all the evidence. He knew the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would always, he was very very involved in his defence. He would say, "Look, what about this? What about this? We called about this." And so we had a pretty kind of continuous dialogue going on. And as I was writing his closing speech, I thought, oh, God, what would it be like if if I wasn't doing it, but he was doing it? What would, what would his closing speech sound like? Because it's really it's really his message. And I'm just the kind of, I'm just communicating the message in a way, I suppose that's a kind of the, the palatable form, you know, for the judge, mm-hmm. for the jury, and all this stuff. Um, and, and so that's how that first novel, You Don't Know Me, was um, was born. It was just me writing the speech that I thought a defendant might write um, if he was faced with a crime and had to deliver his own speech. And I thought, what did it sound like? And so I wrote that in the in between cases or waiting for cases to get on. And I finished the, um, the first draft and I decided just to, as a punt just to send it off to some agents to see, you know, whether mm-hmm. it had legs. Because what had happened a few years before was that I'd written a book and I'd sent uh, I think I sent it off as a kind of, oh, well, let's just see what happens with it. Mm-hmm. And, and when I sent it off, I got almost nothing back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zero interest. I think n- nearly nobody even replied to acknowledge that they'd received it. And I took it quite... But I would say I probably took it quite badly. Not, not. I don't mean that I was kind of incensed. I wasn't. I just kind of gave up a bit. Yeah. I just, well, it's probably just not very. I'm just probably not very good at it. 
And I know other people don't uh, react like this to um, setbacks. And they're the really successful people. The really successful people react in a positive way to setbacks, but that's not really me. And so I just kind of, kind of, kind of put my head down and ignored it. And then, as I say, many years later, I, started, I wrote this. And I sent it off to five agents. And they all came back really quickly. And they all said, send me the rest of it. Wow. And I thought... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we might be onto something. Um, and then what happened was I met the first guy and he said, I really like this, but we would have to change it. And I said, yeah, I'm open to that. What would you, what would you change? And he said, well, we'd have to change all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, well, I didn't think I could do that because it took quite a long time to do it. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, the second person I met was my, uh, was a, a, a woman who became my agent, Camilla, um, from Darby uh, Anderson, and she read it and said, oh, "I really love it. You know, I, you know, this is you know, this is how I see it, and it's really good. It's really current." And I said, "I remember saying to her, so so what? Um, which bits will you have to change?" And she said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, presumably it all means changing." <laughs> I said, "No, we keep it as it is. Don't worry." <laughs> yeah. <You know, laughs> But you know it's going to stay the same, and says right, we're going with you. We're going, we're going to go with you. <laughs> yeah, of two options, I think that sounded like the better one. <laughs> I, I always wonder about that with agents when uh, you know because other um, guests we've had on have said similar things sometimes that the agent shows interest in taking them on, but then doesn't want the work that they've actually sent them, and it, it, it's a curious thing when. You know, when everyone's trying to polish that thing that they try to send into the agent so much, and it might even not, you know, it might not be that that the agent is interested in. It must just be the voice or the way it's written that that grabs the agent's attention. Yeah, yeah and it, it, for, for, for you don't know me, she said it was the, it was their voice. Um, mm-hmm. and the whole thing is kind of written, you know, as a not quite a monologue, but you know, has that has the feel that you know that could be a monologue. And she said, oh, it's the, you know, it was the voice, the character, and so on that, that uh, drove her. But I still um, have this relationship with Camilla where um, I mean, she's a fantastic, the thing is, she's a, not just a great agent, she's a fantastic agent. And she, you know, she champions you and she does everything that you want an agent to do. She pushes and she fights and she's, you know, you want her on your side, she's brilliant. But she's also an amazing editor. And I still have this thing where I, where I send her a manuscript in draft. And um, I, I've used this analogy before. Uh, and it's a bit like, um, I, well, the way I imagine it is, if she'd said to me, do a portrait, and I'd done one for her, and she looks at it and she says, oh, this is quite nice, but instead of the five eyes, can we have just <laughs> and maybe lose a couple of the noses and maybe let's have not three arms, let's stick to the two. So it's a bit like that. And then when she sends it back to me i think oh god yes you're you're right i couldn't have couldn't see it myself mm-hmm. you know how wrong it was in places um, but she's very good at spotting that um so yeah it says yeah i think you know it, to, to that extent where the agent doesn't want the thing that you've submitted sometimes you know it's for good reason mm-hmm. you know as they've seen the things that you just that sometimes are too close to, to being able to see and it's funny because we've we've had a few um writers who are are or were lawyers on the podcast and and when I think about it now I, I guess in a way there's a lot of a lot of being a lawyer especially a court lawyer like yourself is about telling stories you know you're telling us your client story to the judge or the 
sheriff or the jury, etc. And you're telling it in the best way that you can to put emphasis on the important parts as you see it or what things that they should be paying attention to. And and so I wonder if there's a natural link there of some sort between between a lawyer and a writer. Definitely. And in fact, when, when I was starting out, my uh, pupil master, um, the person kind of personally trained me, um, pupil master. <laughs> they call them I mean, devil yeah. masters in Scotland, which is even more ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> we still have that term, deviling. Yeah. Like, uh, devils, a devil outlook. Um, actually, we're not allowed to call them pupil masters anymore. We are now pu- pupil supervisors. There you go. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Big, big difference. Big, big difference. But my pupil master said to me that you can you can tell the facts to a jury, and you can tell them your argument. But the the only way you're going to get it to stick is if you tell it in a way that makes it stick. And the easiest way to do that is to tell them a story, or to you know make sure that whatever point you're making, you're, you're delivering it as a story because stories are memorable. And that's you know part of because we are in the oral tradition give that speech orally but part of that oral tradition is you know the telling of stories and every culture does it and the and the reason that the stories can be passed down the generations in that way is because they're memorable and you can convey a message in a way which sticks and you do that in in a in a jury speech and um so yeah there are those very direct parallels i think and i wondered if there was also um, assistance from your legal career as well in terms of the way that you approach writing fiction do, uh, do you I imagine with a with a court case you'll you know you'll spend a lot of time looking at the detail and in a jury speech you'll think about the order of things that you want to tell the jury and things like that uh, are you someone when you write your fiction that will plan it out in in quite a bit of detail beforehand no, no, and in fact, I think <laughs> it's a hindrance because when I'm uh, kind of getting the threads together for a jury speech, I'm usually aiming to do a speech which is no longer than about twenty or thirty minutes, mm-hmm. because any longer than that, and you you lose their attention, particularly when they're concentrating. Uh, particularly if you're going, you know, straight after the prosecution speech, so they've already had the. 30, 40 minutes of attention um, has been spent on them. So you've got to be quite concise. And so I, what I found is when I was planning my novels, I'd have you know great material for 20 minutes <laughs> worth of stuff. <laughs> kind of, it would fizzle out. Or I'd have a, a, a plot which you know would work nicely in a very, very, very short novella. Mm-hmm. But, you, know, you couldn't really stretch it out over a novel. And so I found myself trying to eke out a very kind of tight plot of the course of you know ninety thousand words. So you know that that didn't work. So in the end I um and I'm not a planner at all. I don't I don't know. I once heard Lee Child saying this in a, a panel and he said, Oh well I don't really like planning out um novels because I you know I don't want to know how it ends because I won't carry on writing it if I know how it ends. I want I want to find out the ending as I'm going along, and I'm, I'm not quite that bad. <laughs> um, I, it, it, it's just, I mean, I'm quite envious of people who can plot novels out in that way. Mm. I'm just not very good at it. And it's something I think what happens is when I get the idea for a novel, I want to just kind of dive into it to see whether it works. Because sometimes you'd have a great idea, or, or, or an idea which I think, <laughs> I think is right, and then I'll start it. 
And about a week into it, I think this isn't working. Yeah, that's not going to work because of you know whatever the character is that you've written. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work for that. And I'll give an, an example was I wrote one. I wrote a character who was a um, a psychopath or a sociopath, and the plot was great. But as I started writing him, I realised that there was, you couldn't develop very much um, of a connection to him because he's a psychopath. And you know there is no kind of emotional bond that he's you know, willing to create with you. And if you have a character like that, it kind of dies on the page. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes you have to abandon stuff. And then, yeah, I think that's what I like to do: just trying it, see if it works, and then if it works, carry on a bit. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I imagine that must lead to a lot of drafts. Then is that you know, do you do a lot of drafts until you're happy with? The, I finally got a story I can write from A to B. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, either I'm doing a lot of drafts, or Camilla's doing a lot of drafts, <laughs> <laughs> cutting out the additional ears, and <laughs> and yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, that sometimes happens. It, you know, we'll look at it and we'll think, oh, yeah. This is. I, I remember once having a character who I based on somebody I knew um, very well, and uh, Camilla said to me, "Look, this character is ridiculous." <laughs> It's never going to work. Nobody will believe this person. And I said, I know this person. <laughs> He's amazing. <man." laughs> yeah, nobody's going to believe that this person exists. Um, and, and this mate of mine, uh, just by way of example, wears, he wears actual rose-tinted spectacles and um, will go to court wearing a cowboy hat, <laughs> a kind of a heel-length, wax jacket and cowboy boots and he's got kind of I don't know what the appropriate term is for it but he's got you know the beard which doesn't quite fully grow yeah when you shave this bit mutton, mutton <laughs> chops, chops yeah. Yeah. I've got a different phrase for it but I don't know what else <laughs> <laughs> and he's got mutton chops and I and I said uh, you know, and, he, and in fact I think he, he, he might there was a rumour that he had wooden teeth um <laughs> I, I can totally see why nobody would actually think this is a real person. This is what he said. She said, nobody's going to go for it. And I said, well, you should meet him because he turned up uh, at his own wedding riding a horse. And she said, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> he is, And he's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Fantastic. A, he's a talented lawyer, in fact. Yeah, very, very talented man. I, I do wonder what the clients must think when, when he first walks in the room, however. <laughs> When he rides him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some really love him. I mean, some don't, you know, don't go that well with him, but some of them. Yeah. I suppose for some people, that's kind of what they expect. They want that drama. Yeah, yeah. the theatre, all the flamboyance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you've sort of already mentioned that Camilla, your agent, will um, help you with the sort of editing of it. And it sounded like you're quite receptive to that. Um, you know, do you ever get notes either from Camilla or from your um, editor at the publisher that you're not sure about or you want to push back on or anything like that? Uh, so um, I, uh, for, for me, it's a question of trust. Now, I, I trust what Camilla says, and uh, I, I would say 95% of the time I, I go with it because I, I look at it and, it, and I'll think, oh, that makes perfect sense or total sense. To me, so you know, I usually find that she's right. Um, and the same with the editor. I, my view has always been: look, people come to me for advice, 
and by and large they take my advice because that's my area of expertise and I hand over the that area of expertise to the editors mm. so look this is yeah, this is what they know best and so in fact when they come to me and say uh, we're not happy with the title we want to change it to I know what I saw <laughs> then I say right um mm-hmm. there's you know because they they they're doing something more than just having a title which fits the book. They are saying, well, you know this, but they're saying, um, this is the kind of book it is, this is the kind of audience it wants, this is where the bookshops will place it, these are the bookshops that will buy it. You know, they're doing a whole yeah. load of other things with the title that I, you know, I can't do. And the same with designing the jacket. I don't really have much of a say in it, but I don't mind that, I don't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you've got to trust the experts with uh, chosen because otherwise, no point having them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, your first book, um, "You Don't Know Me," was was really well received when it came out. It won, um, uh, gla- it was shortlisted for the Glass Bell Award, longlisted for the Cranberries Association Those Dixon Awards. It was chosen as a Radio Two Book Club. Uh, Garden had it as one of the best criminals of the year. Lee Child, Tana French had accolades for it. I mean, that must have been a really for like, you know for your for your first book. What what an an, an amazing buzz that must have been. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it kind of blew me away. Um, and it and it was happening. Well, one thing was happening straight after the next, after the next. So, mm-hmm. so my um, um, my publicist would phone me up and say, "Hey, we're on, you're on Simon Mayo." I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> you can short this is this or, or that. Oh, you've been your thing has been optioned for TV, and, and and it was it was literally one thing after the next, and it was a real kind of thrill. And it slightly ruined me for the. <laughs> <laughs> When am I going on Graham Norton? Um, <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, that was, it was a real surprise. And it was particularly a surprise to have it optioned and then green lit. That was the thing. Um, and it was only much later on that I realised, after speaking to a lot of other writers, that you, know, you can be optioned quite a lot. Getting green lit is pretty mm-hmm. much as rare as his teeth, and so you know that's been you know, as amazing as anything else to see the thing coming onto you know being filmed. And that's you know you, you, I was I was lucky enough to be invited along to the um, um, some of the shooting, and so you turn up at the studio and you meet these people who are the people that you've invented yeah. for the book, and you're meeting them, and it's bizarre. It's so strange. I think you listen to them saying words that you've written. Not all of them, because you know we've got a screenwriter who wrote better words than all. <laughs> but some of them are mine, and the names. Some of the names are the same, and it's that was really surreal just to listen to that. Yeah, uh, I, I can imagine. I mean, did you have any involvement in the in the TV adaptation at all? Yeah, yeah. So, well, not loads, but uh, a little bit. So, what happened was that I was put in touch with Tom Edge, who wrote the screenplay, and um, and you know he's he's super talented and very, very, very well regarded. And so, you know, there's very little I can do to help him. But he would he would just phone me and say, "I'm trying to write this court scene. Is this the way to do?" It? And he would show me his draft. And I you know, occasionally would tweak it and say, no, you wouldn't say that, you'd say that. But, he, you know, he's, he's so sharp, he, he gets... He, he got all the legal stuff really quickly. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, often much more quickly than lawyers get it. He was just razor sharp. So that was, you know, that was an easy thing to do uh, because it was him. 
or, or the director, um, Sam Massoud, uh, would phone me and say, uh, uh, or would message me during the shoot and say, quick question, do does this judge have this kind of wig or quick question, where would the witness stand on the left or the right? Or, where would it, you know, the, so there was that kind of involvement. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, uh, oh, yeah, I wasn't writing the screenplay for that. Is that something you'd like to do in the future at all? Well, well funnily enough, I was um, I, I was approached by a, a number of TV production companies to write a, a different to, to work on different projects. So one was um, a, a lovely, talented woman called Nisha Party who said, oh, "Have you got anything interesting?" You know, I'm thinking of you know doing some stuff and I want to work with uh, new writers. I'd like to work with you. Have you got any ideas? And I said, oh, funnily enough, I've got this book which I haven't sent off for submission yet. Um, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of, you know, a, a um, kind of young kids involved in criminality, involves gun. And she said, oh, I'm not really looking for comedy. I said, well, read it anyway. And she read it and she said, yeah, I'd quite like to, to make this. What, you know, will you write it? And I said, I don't know how to write a script. <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, give it a go. It's not that hard. <laughs> so she was wrong about that. Um, <laughs> I well, she quite enjoyed it. Quite enjoyed it. Um, it took, you know, in a way, it took a different discipline because you don't have 20 pages to, to, to develop a scene. Instead, you know, in a line, you say, deserted car park, smash headlights, mm. or whatever. Which is quite a nice uh, discipline, quite a nice way of, kind of engaging the brain in a different way, but to the same uh, end. Um, and then uh, someone else um, asked me to help, uh, help develop a legal drama, so I've been working on that. And, and then I've got another project, which is like a thriller. So, yeah, so I'm doing a bit wow. more of um, Awesome. None of it's gone anywhere yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving it a go. I mean, how how do you juggle this with uh, the legal work as well? Yeah, it's it, it's quite tough, and also I've got two 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 young children. One one's a baby who is a year old and isn't sleeping, <laughs> <laughs> and hasn't slept the whole of her life. <laughs> no I feel time. your pain. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah at the moment, I will scavenge whatever time I can. So sometimes when they're all asleep, I, you know, I'll do some writing, or if I'm on a train on the way to court, I'll do some, or on the way back, or waiting for jewelry, or just w- whenever I can, if I've got mm-hmm. some time, I'll do a bit of writing and just try and fit it all in. And your your latest book is I Know What I Saw, which has just come out this month. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what that, that, that book is about? Okay, so um, that um, the story is a kind of middle-class man, h- highly educated, um, the Oxbridge guy, who comes from a family of uh, academics, and he's geared up to have all of the privileges that life can give you. So he's, in a way, he's been perfectly set up for a life of ease. Um, but we meet him when he is homeless and more or less destitute, and he's beginning to fray. And he lives on the streets, and one day uh, in London, it's raining heavily, and uh, he's looking for shelter and pushes against a door which opens. It's a flat in Mayfair, and goes in to dry off. 
And then as he goes into the flat, he thinks it's been abandoned uh, or, or is empty. Um, and then is just lying down there on the floor when he hears voices and it's the occupants um, residents returning. He hides and as he hides, he he's kind of trapped in his hiding place. He can't get out from behind the sofa because they're there. Um, and, you know, he ends up witnessing one of the two people killing the other. And as he... Um, as he's there kind of watching this in terror, frozen. And then afterwards he reports to the police and nobody believes him. They don't believe him, you know, partly because you know, of who he is. He looks slightly mad. He's of no fixed abode. He's, he, you know, he seems like he could be you know, mentally unstable. And then also when they go and check it out, um, that you know, there is no dead body. Nobody seems to have been killed. Nothing he describes is as he's described it, and it's a kind of impossible crime. Um, but, yeah, so that's the kind of broad plot, and it kind of just gets worse <laughs> it goes along for him. It just gets harder and harder, and he finds himself in deeper and deeper trouble. And it's it's written um, a first-person present tense, which, um, you know, is that a deliberate choice? Often that... I think can be it can give a real sense of immediacy to a story, but sometimes with present tense it can it can almost not read like a novel if it's not if it's not done in the right way. If you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, so I I, I I tried different versions of it, and what I wanted to do was create a sense of claustrophobia because because I'm dealing one of the things I wanted to deal with was this issue of identity and how it intersects with memory. And, you know, we walk around, live our lives, live our experiences, our experiences feed who we are, and we become our experiences, our experiences become us, and we're kind of enmeshed in this kind of tapestry. And I thought, you know, when your memory starts to go, or if there's trauma to your memory, how does that affect who you become? How does it affect your personality? And the only way to really understand that for the character is to get very close to him. And I thought first person present gives you that sense of claustrophobia. So you're never really quite out of his head. And mm. You're right behind his eyes in a way. So you can see what he's seeing and feel what he's feeling. And it, it, it's, it seems to work better in first person present than any of the other ways of doing it. But, but you're right. It's, you know, it's a challenge to get it to feel like a novel. And sometimes it can feel a bit... Exhausting, I suppose. Mm-hmm. What it, it also, I suppose, um, it, it can it can affect the structure of the plot because you can only write what they know. If you, if you see what I mean, you know, if it was a more third person set back kind of narrative, then you can throw in different scenes to to seed through the plot and stuff. So that in itself brings its own challenges, I suppose. Yeah, well, I don't mind that so much because, um, you know, I quite like the, this idea of experiential and stories so that, you know, if you're telling the story as you observe it and you see life as you observe it and you're relaying it, I, I, I quite like that anecdotal feel about mm-hmm. the story. Um, and when you've got kind of omniscient third person rather than close third person, yeah. It can sometimes feel a bit like, I don't know. I mean, it, when, when it's done well, it's obviously it's fabulous. And when anything's done well, it's fabulous. 
Um, but there is this kind of slight deus ex machina yeah. quality mm -hmm. that yeah. anything can happen and you can pull a fact out of nowhere in a way um, because your character doesn't have to appreciate that something's happened. You can put everything in the background. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, in the in, in an oral tradition, you're telling stories about things that that's happened to you. And I find those interesting, those stories, where somebody says, oh, God, I was in, I was in court yesterday and you'll never believe what happened. And then they'll tell you this story. And it, and it, it doesn't need everybody else's perspective. Yeah. You can get a sense. I'll I, 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 I give you an example if you want. I was... Um, Years ago, somebody told me this story about how he was in the magistrate's court and his defendant was being sentenced. And you've got to fill out a means form, which is how much you earn. So he said to the defendant, have you done a means form? And he says, yeah. He says, well, can you give it to us? And he was like, oh, I haven't finished yet. Have you got any sellotape? So he says, go and get some sellotape. What do you need sellotape for? He says, well, I just need some sellotape. So they fuss around getting him some sellotape. So he's ripping it up and... So, and he's kind of hiding it, and nobody knows. <laughs> and then eventually, and the form comes in, kind of, it's, it's folded in three, and he hands it up. <clears throat> Prosecutor takes it. He goes, it's not for you. It's not for you to look at. Uh, you go, that goes straight to the magistrates. And there are three magistrates. That goes straight. And the prosecutor pulls it, and he gives it to the clerk. And the clerk looks at it. He goes, it's not for you. <laughs> he looks at it, and she says, to me, I think you better see this. Um, as, you know, as he's selling it um, in the first person, so he, 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 he looked at it. And, uh, he says, "I opened it, and it had three five-pound notes, sellotaped, <laughs> <laughs> as if it was a bribe." <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, that's got everything a story needs. I think it's got, and it's all from one person's point yeah. of view, and you can work all the motivations and the reactions mm -hmm. from that. And I, I don't know, I quite like that way of telling a story, I think. It, from yeah. it's, it's interesting to get, you know, I think a lot of Stephen King novels stand and stuff like that are told in that kind of really high up third person where it's almost like he's telling you a story and he's like, and there's this person, this is their background and this person. And it's, and it's almost like he's in the room with you and he's in all their heads and it's, and and he does a very good job of that, um, but I feel a lot of other people that agree with it's like that. It it is it doesn't quite work as well for me. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there's there's something about limiting yourself or limiting the reader's ability to be in everyone's head and to leave that kind of either leave a mystery or let them fill in the blanks themselves. Because as you say, it's often it's it's and it's with between the lines. You don't need to spell out everything to get it. And it's and folk can make the assumptions and the jumps. You know without any real trouble. Yeah, and, and we all live this individual experience anyway, so we don't always have all the information. We just have yeah. the information. Yeah, true. And, and you're right, when it's done in that way, where it's particularly if you've got dialogue between two people and they don't do it right, and, you, and they switch point of view, you kind of seasick. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're feeling what they're feeling, and it's, if it's not done correctly, um, yeah, it, it can be a bit dizzying. And is it important when you write your novels that they have that they explore, you know, a, a theme or have a message of some sort in them? Do do you want you know more than just a simple story? You want to explore something in in the telling of it as well. Yeah, yeah, I've, I, I, I've always thought that. If um, for me, if I 
don't tell the well for, for me the real story is the is the is the big theme so mm-hmm. it's morality or it's justice or it's equality or racism or or um you know diversity or memory and identity those those are actually the stories i want to tell and yet I, i'm delivering it through the medium of um, a crime story but the crime story is really just the, the cover <laughs> you know to sneak in the other th- the other mm-hmm. story that i really tell um because i'm uh, because i'm not really a, a, a good enough a literary writer to do it in the ordinary literary way. <laughs> so I have to through the medium of this. I quite like the idea of telling this story, but, you know, sneaking uh, another story in alongside it, because uh, otherwise for me, it'd be a wasted or missed opportunity, I think, because you've got, you've got your captive audience mm-hmm. there in your hands and, you know, it's your opportunity to, to tell the story that you want to tell. And people don't always respond well to being told stuff um, and be, to, to be told how to feel about some big mm. issue. But if you can tell it in, in in a story and you can change people's perceptions and their views and you know, how they feel about something, then that's quite powerful too. I, I remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird and remembering how powerful that message was being delivered and it's you know, delivered through scout a nine-year-old mm-hmm. child uh you know and she's not, not intending to, to to shove a message down your throat but it, it's done so beautifully that you know it would have been a terrible shame if that opportunity had been missed just for the telling of a different story mm-hmm. and there was a phrase i saw you use i think it was an interview with the guardian and, and, it, and you talked about putting the moral argument against legal guilt and i wondered what you meant by that exactly so um right for me the the law has always tried to represent um the kind of moral um values of a society so we develop our laws so that they match as far as possible what we feel um, is reprehensible conduct so theft murder and so on but um, the law can't cater for every bit of morality and for every moral situation. It tries to, but it can't. So by way of example, um, the law says you can't kill someone and they'll punish you if you do. But the law does not say that you have to intervene to save mm. someone's life. So if you see somebody drowning in six inches of water, you don't have a criminal responsibility to save them. You can let them die. But there's still the moral question. Mm -hmm. And the moral question isn't always the same as the legal question. So morally, yes, it would be reprehensible for you not to save that person, particularly if it's at no risk to yourself. And I always thought that question was interesting. Um, And also there are some kind of legal wrongs which aren't necessarily commensurate with being with immorality so you know you will have people who have take the obvious example you know steal a loaf of bread to feed feed your family has a kind of moral um, weight to it um, but is still illegal or you know those those cases where somebody has you know killed someone in um, defending their own homes mm-hmm. You know, where does the where does the moral line lie and how does it um, blur the legal ones? 
I've always thought that's an interesting question because because the one system is designed to cater for the other. The legal system is designed to cater for our, our moral needs as well as to you know, provide law and order. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, just going back to what you were saying as well <clears throat> before about using a story to deliver these things, it, it's a way of, um, as you said, reaching a wider audience. You can you can explore these things in a way that someone might not pick up a textbook that was saying the same thing, but you can reach a much wider audience and still get them to think about these themes or these arguments as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not everybody's going to come across a young uh, black man who uh, is living on an estate and uh, is surrounded by that kind of criminal gangs. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not an experience everybody in the world is going to have. Or you know a, a homeless person. You'll see them, but you always interact with them. So so it's a good way of bringing a, a, an experience to a, a, an audience which might never have experienced it. Um, and then that 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 meeting of that virtual person um, becomes almost almost as valuable as meeting a real person because it gives it starts to give you an insight into their thoughts and their behaviors and their motivations and you get to experience it from a place of safety so so you don't have to if you're frightened to go and speak to somebody who's got a gun in his hand, or if you're embarrassed, you know, speak to somebody who's who's living in a cardboard box. It'd be nice if we if we could all the time, but the reality is that we won't. Mm-hmm. But we can explore the issues from a position of relative safety. We can try and understand some of the pressures and try and understand some of the context. Um, and I think it's a good way of doing that at least um does that add um a a sense of responsibility when you're when you're writing about these these sorts of themes as well i mean do you do you obviously in your work um that that'll give you a lot of experience but do you spend time researching uh things that you're wanting to explore in your novels as well yeah yeah i I think um the responsibility um is to do it um, with as much with as much sensitivity as you can, try and make it as authentic, as authentic as you can. But that's as much as you can do, you know, when it comes to character. Um, and then, so far as the you know message is concerned, you know, make sure that you try and deliver that in as balanced a way as possible. Because ultimately, we're not you know, we're not lecturing; we're just mm-hmm. explaining. Yeah. And, you know, we're not saying, I'm not saying, oh, you know, being in a gang is an awful thing or murder is an awful thing. I'm saying this, these are the competing arguments. You decide for yourself how you feel about it, but you might get a sense of how the writer feels about it. That's fine because Mm -hmm. because everybody has a point of view. Yeah. And it would be unusual if the writer didn't have a point of view as well. But, you know, take it all in, take it all in and reach your own decision. Um, and remember that people aren't always when they're telling the stories they aren't always reliable you can't always trust somebody you trust some of what people say you can't always trust everything that people say mm-hmm. and so what's looking forward what, what's your plan then are you are you wanting to continue 
the day job? Are you wanting to hang that up and just write full time? No, no. I, I for the moment, I'd like to do both um, it, for as long as I can. Yeah. Um, and you know, the day job's in a way useful because it has it brings you into contact with you know a hundred different people from different backgrounds, from different mm-hmm. places, living different lives that I otherwise would never have the privilege of meeting. You know, one day I meet uh, you know, a millionaire stockbroker who's involved in a potential fraud, and you know that's that's an interesting person to meet. Mm-hmm. He's as interesting as the guy I met a couple of weeks ago, who is you know six foot five, you know twenty stone, and a burglar, an alleged burglar, and you know, and he's interesting because I, so I tell him, how do you burgle something when you? <laughs> <laughs> so was, you know, most of the burglars I'd met were kept small and wiry he was surely shooting. what he said was I don't <laughs> <laughs> he had he, he'd have more convictions alright okay. I'd ever met uh, some, <laughs> 38 or something wow sounds like he's obviously not a very good burglar <laughs> well, that, that, that was the answer he gave he went well <laughs> What you get called? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you you've said you're you're working on um, uh, these various projects. Uh, is one of those projects uh, the next book as well? Yeah. So I've just handed in the first draft of the next book um, to my editor. So I'm keeping my fingers. And that's always slightly tense because you don't know until they've read it what they think of it. Mm-hmm. You don't have Kind of a clue about what they think of it, unless you've delivered it in stages, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a kind of old-fashioned novel. <laughs> episodes. Do, do, do you have to give them sort of a a pitch for it at all, or is it entirely fresh when they get it? Oh, so with this one, what had happened was I had I had already started writing it when we were um, um, talking to them about a, uh, a contract for two books. And so the way they did this one was that they said, oh, we'll, we'll, we're happy to offer it on a partial, so show us what you've got. Um, and so I, I'd had whatever it was, 20,000 words, which I showed them, and they looked at it and said, yeah, we're happy to offer on that. But the next the next one will be on a pitch, so I'll have to right. the idea for it. These are the characters. Uh, you know, I might give them a couple of chapters and say, this is the tone of it, this is how it will read, this is the point of view, this is the kind of scheme I'll use. What, what do you make of it? And they might say, brilliant, and they might say, mm, not really for us. Because they're also concerned with other things like branding. Mm-hmm. You, you're unaware of when you start. <laughs> when I started, I fully expected to write, have written the book, give them the book, and then just go home. And I didn't realise that they want you there the whole time. They want you there for each of the edits. And I thought, well, you're the editor. Aren't you supposed to be <laughs> But I literally thought they would do all of the edits for me, not just tell me what needed to be changed. But no, that's me. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, the copy edits and the proof edits and all of that. And then they say things like, oh, we um, want to kind of be with you and help you throughout the whole of your uh, writing career. And at that point, I remember thinking, writing, I had no idea that I was doing a writing career. I thought I was just delivering one book 
and selling it to you in much the same way as I'd sell you, you know, a bit of furniture mm -hmm. if I, I made furniture. I thought that was the end of the arrangement, but no, they, they they want you if they can for as long as possible, which is you know not a lovely thing if you're a, a writer that they do. I can't remember what the question was, but the answer's probably not, not English. It was it was about <laughs> pitching whether whether you had to pitch the story, but um, when is the um, you don't know me show out? Is there a date for that yet? Oh. So it's been filmed. This is uh, as I keep saying. I, I keep saying it's in the can. And um, the director keeps kind of grimace cringing whenever I say it. <laughs> it's never a phrase that they've ever used. But yeah, it's in the can, as they don't say in the industry. And I'm told that no one knows when it's being screened because it's a dark art. All right. <laughs> Apparently, scheduling is a really dark art, and not even the commissioners know when the schedulers. I've got it sl slated for, and it's and that's because they need to know what channel is doing what, right? Is compete with that, and do we want to be next to Hobby City or is it Coronation or whatever the show is? So there's all of that going on, but we think doing the best we can that it's going to be sometime next year. Excellent, precise, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that whenever whenever that day appears. Um, what was the last book that you read? Oh, um, so I, end, I usually end up reading two or three of them at the same time. Um, so, so, so can I give you a few that I've... Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so I read a, a great book by Jason Mock called, and it's a hell of a book, and it's called Hell of a Book. Okay. It's brilliant. If you get a chance to read it, it's fantastic. And it's, it's about an author who writes a book called Hell of a Book. <laughs> and he's got a book tour around the States. But it's this fabulous commentary on everything that's going on in America right now. And it, it starts with this character who uh, is a black writer, and he's still going on this tour, and he sees, keeps seeing this kid, and he's a young black kid, and he sees him, he turns up everywhere. And he's the kind of blackest kid he's ever seen in his life, almost as if he's absorbed all of the light from the room. And he keeps seeing him. And it's just this, it's a gorgeous book. You get a chance to read it. It's brilliant. Um, I finished reading The Last House on Needless Street by Katriana Ward, which is a kind of gothic horror, but not a gothic horror. It's, again, pretty sublime. I'm in the middle of reading um, Steve Kavanagh's new one, which is, as all of his books are, you know, it's brilliant, spectacular book. Hits it, hits every nail on the head as he goes through it. It's just a, he's an expert of those things. I'm reading Vaseem Khan's new one, which is called A Dying Day. Also brilliant. I mean, if you like cosy crime, I don't think anybody in the country does it better than him right now. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, I've been reading Erin um, Kelly's book, Last One to Fall, I think it's called. Um, I'll get that right. <laughs> but, but it's also fantastic. It's about the ballet world, but she writes so beautifully. But, you know. I mean, do you ever sleep? No, clearly not. 
<laughs> I, I, I try and use the book before. So the one book I'm reading, which I'm reading to fall asleep to, is called The Leopard by Giuseppe Lampedusa. Yeah. Uh. Oh, it's so cheap. I mean, it probably says more about me than it does about the book, but I find it really, really difficult. <laughs> but it sends you off to sleep, so it serves its purpose at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and what about the last film that you've watched? Oh. I, I don't tend to watch films. I tend to watch things on Netflix in five parts or six parts, and I watched The Mayor of East Ham. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, amazing. Obviously, it helps that it's you know got her in it because she's oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, she's just incredible. I mean, the Titanic started her off, I and mean, she's been getting better and better since. And and, and this script in there is seems. Yeah, we, my wife and I, sat down to watch a couple of episodes and ended up binging the whole all seven episodes <laughs> in one night. It was staggering, isn't it? So good. Yeah. Um, Last film I watched, I think it was called, it might not be called this, a Fatherhood or Parenthood. And it's got, this is how good I am, it's got a comedian in it and it's on Netflix. And the comedian is probably the most famous comedian in the world. It's not, it's not the old Steve Martin fatherhood, Parenthood film, no. No, 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 it's not. It's a, it's a new film. Right. Um, let me have it. Let me just. <laughs> um, um, I've just watched that. It's very good. It, it's uh, found it. Um, it has got Kevin Hart in it. There you go. Oh, okay. The most famous uh, comedian. <laughs> and it's called Fatherhood, and it's on Netflix. And it's you know it's an easy watch. It's not terribly taxing. But, you know, nice, comfortable watch. Excellent. Nice. And the very, very last thing we always do is a quick fire, either or. So there's no right answers apart from one. And the first one is going to be Atticus Finch or Perry Mason. Atticus Finch, all day long. All day long. Uh, TV or cinema? Ooh. Uh, today, TV. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? A night owl. Um, fancy restaurant or takeaway? Oh, I miss the fancy restaurants. Yeah, I haven't yeah. been to one. Oh, yeah, fancy restaurant. And last one, real book or e-book? Real book. Real book. Another wrong answer. Very <laughs> well in this one. Tarek asks everyone this, and I think about three people have said e-book. Not having so. a lot of support recently in the old e-book camp. We're starting to starve out here, I think. <laughs> Wrong. Oh, that was a really fun chat. I really, I really enjoyed that, and uh, uh, some really great examples. I think of uh, choosing just enough stuff from your real life uh, job yeah. or uh, what you see around you and putting in, into a novel. You know, it's a great place to find the character. Yeah, absolutely. Court. I mean, obviously, it's inspired him in terms of his ideas but obviously the characters you meet in a mm. in a job like that are obviously going to be very varied and give you a lot of rich seam of of, of uh, stuff to to draw from but yeah. as he said sometimes 
even the real characters are are too ridiculous to put in the book. I, I'm not a sure. A wax jacket. Yeah, the the the, the rose tinted glasses, and I'm I'm not sure. I would want that as uh, that sort of person as my defence <laughs> no, lawyer. I think if you turned up, I'd be like, "I'll just, I'll just, I did it, I just did it." Give the same <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's a very good lawyer. I'm sure he is. Then he gets sued. Exactly. Guess. Probably should be slagging off lawyers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, uh, thanks very much to Imran for coming on to the podcast. We really enjoyed that, and his book. I know I saw is out. It's got a lot of buzz about it. So you can go and pick that up in your local bookshop or pick it up online. We'll put a link in the podcast description so that you can grab that. Uh, But we've got another great guest next week. Yeah, it's a really, really fun chat next week. uh, One I was very excited with, Mr. C. Robert Cargill, who is uh, perhaps best known for his screenplay work. He's written movies such as Sinister uh, and it's sequel and Doctor Strange uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, kind of the first time I kind of got to know him and he's he's written a whole bunch of stuff he's got the Black Phone coming up soon which yep. is an adaption of Joe Hill's short story um, and yeah he's a, it's a really fun um, fun chat with him he's written a number of books Sea of Rust is the big one he's done recently and it's recent yeah, sequel, sea of Rust Day Zero and Day Zero yeah which is a prequel um, prequel sorry uh, yeah no it's a really interesting chat and for those that don't know uh, Cargo, as he likes to call himself. Cargo, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, he started out as a film reviewer for the, at the time, very famous Ain't It Cool News website. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, sort of got into screenwriting, which is, you know, a, a dream path, really. And then from there, has has gone on to write some really great novels as well. So it's a really interesting chat and, you know, really getting behind the curtain on some of the. Hollywood industry and you know what yeah. it's like to work with Marvel and and yep. things like that. Yep. So um yeah do tune in for that episode it's really good fun. And of course if anyone has any questions or comments they can always get in touch with us by sending us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a twit a twit a tweet. <laughs> please don't send <laughs> a us a tweet send us a tweet <laughs> a, twi- a tweet in the twitter machine which is at right underscore gear and if you enjoyed the episode uh, please do take time to give us a quick rating on apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you listen to uh, that that would be really helpful to help us stay in the charts uh, otherwise have a great week and we'll see you next episode see you later Thank you.